personal declension and a revival of religion in a soul. Octavius Winslow, preface, that the subject on which this humble volume treats is vastly solemn and deeply searching. Every true believer in Jesus must acknowledge the existing necessity for such a work has long impressed itself upon the author's mind. While other and able writers are employing their pens either in defending the outpost of Christianity or in arousing a slumbering church to an increased intensity of personal and combined action in the great work of Christian benevolence, he has felt that it might be but instrumental in ever so humble a way of occasionally withdrawing the eye of the believer from the dazzling and almost bewildering movements around him and fixing it upon the state of his own personal religion. He'd be rendering the Christian church a service, not less than needed an important and her present elevated and excited position. It must be admitted that the characters and tendency of the age are not favorable to deep and mature reflection upon the hidden spiritual life of the soul, world along, as the Church of God is, in her brilliant path of benevolent enterprise, deeply engaging, concerting, and carrying out new and far-reaching plans of aggression upon the dominion of sin, and compelled in one hand to hold a spiritual sword in defense of the faith which the other she is upbuilding. But few energies are left, and but little time is afforded for close, faithful, and frequent dealing with the personal and spiritual state of grace in the soul, which in consequence of thus being overlooked and uncultivated, may fall into a state of the deepest and most painful declension. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 6. It is, then, a humble design of the writer in the present work for a while to withdraw the mind from the consideration of the mere externals of Christianity and to aid the believer in answering a Solomon's searching inquiry. What? It's the present spiritual state of my soul before God. In the following pages, he is exhorted to forget the Christian profession he sustains the party badge he wears, and the distinctive name by which he is known among men, to turn aside for a brief hour from all religious duties, engagements, and excitement, and to look this question fully and fairly in the face. With human wisdom and eloquence, the author is not seen fit to load and adorn his work. The subject presented itself to his mind in too solemn and dreadful an aspect for this. The ground he traversed he felt to be so holy, did he need to put off the shoes from his feet, and to lay aside everything that was not in strict harmony with the spiritual character of his theme, that the traces of human imperfection may be found on every page. No one can be more conscious than the author, no one more deeply humbled. Indeed, so affecting to his own mind has been the conviction of the feeble manner in which the subject is treated, did but for a deep sense of its vast importance and the demand that exists for its discussion in almost any shape. He would more than once have withdrawn his book from the press. May the Spirit of God accompany his perusal with power and unction, and to him, his unto the Father and the Son shall be ascribed to glory. Chapter 1. Incipient. Declension. Proverbs 14, verse 14 to backslider in heart. If there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually-minded believer, it is that, after all God has done for him, 
after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the repeated discipline of his covenant, the tokens of love received and the lessons of experience learned, there should still exist in the heart a principle, the tendency of which is to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. Truly, there isn't this solemn fact that which might well lead to the deepest self-abasement before him. If in the present early stage of our inquiry into this subject, we might be permitted to assign a cause for the growing power, which this late and subtle principle is allowed to exert in the soul, We'd refer to the believer's constant forgetfulness of the truth, that there is no essential element in divine grace that can secure it from the deepest spiritual declension, that, if left to itself sustaining energy, such are the hostile influences by which it is surrounded, such the severe assaults to which it is exposed, and such the feeble resistance it is capable of exerting, there is not a moment splendid though its former victories may have been, which the incipient and secret progress of declension may not have commenced and be going forward in the soul. There is a proneness in us to deify the graces of the spirit. We often think of faith and love and their kindred graces as though they were essentially omnipotent, forgetting that though they undoubtedly are divine in their origin, spiritual in their nature, and sanctifying in their effects, they yet are sustained by no self-supporting power, but by constant communications of life and nourishment from Jesus, that the moment of their being left to their inherent strength is the moment of their certain declension and decay. We must here, however, guard a precious and important truth, that is, the indestructible nature of true grace. Divine grace in the soul can never really die. True faith can never utterly and finally fail, we are speaking now but of their decay. A flower may droop, and yet live. A plant may be sickly, and yet not die. In the lowest stage of spiritual declension, in the feeblest state of grace, there is a life that never dies. In the midst of all his starting society, the ebb and the flow, the wandering and the restoring, the believer in Jesus is kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. He cannot utterly fall. He cannot finally be lost. The immutability of God keeps him. The covenant of grace keeps him. The finished work of Jesus keeps him. The indwelling of the Spirit keeps him and keeps him to eternal glory. We say then, true grace is indestructible grace that can never die. But it may decay. And to the consideration of the solemn and important subject, the reader's serious attention is now invited. We propose to exhibit a subject of personal declension of religion and soul, in some of its varied and prominent forms and phases, and to direct to those means which God has ordained and blessed to its restoration and revival. Believing as we do, that no child of God ever recedes into a state of inward declension and outward backsliding, but by slow and gradual steps. And believing, too, that a process of spiritual decay may be going forward within the secret recesses of the soul, and not a suspicion or a fear be awakened in the mind of the believer, we feel it of the deepest moment that this state should first be brought to view in its incipient and concealed form. May the Lord, the Spirit, 
Fill the writer's and the reader's mind with light, the heart with lowliness, and raise and fix the eye of faith simply and solely upon Jesus as we proceed in the unfolding of a theme so purely spiritual and so deeply heart-searching. We commence with a brief exposition of a doctrine which must be regarded as forming the groundwork of our subject, that is, the life of God and the soul of man. The believer in Jesus is a partaker of the divine nature, Second Peter 1, verse 4. He is born of the Spirit. Christ dwells in him by faith, and is constitutes his new and spiritual life. A single but emphatic expression of the apostles unfolds a doctrine and confirms a fact. Christ in you. Colossians 1, verse 27. It is not so much that the believer lives, is that Christ lives in him. Thus the apostle expresses it. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Do we look at the history of Paul as illustrative of the doctrine? Behold the grand secret of his extraordinary life. He lived unreservedly for Christ. In the spring of it was Christ lived spiritually in him. This it was that rendered him so profound in wisdom, rich in knowledge, bold in preaching, undaunted in zeal, unwearied in toil, patient in suffering and successful in labor. Christ lived in him, and this forms the high and holy life of every child of God. Christ, who is our life, to him, is a covenant head and mediator of his people. It was given to have life in himself that he might give eternal life to as many as the Father had given him. Christ possesses this life, John 5, verse 26. Christ communicates it, John 5, verse 25. Christ sustains it, John 6, verse 57. And Christ crowns it with eternal glory, John 17, verse 24. A peculiar characteristic of the life of God in a soul is that it is concealed. Your life is hid with Christ in God. It is a hidden life. Its nature, its source, its actings, its supports are veiled from the observation of men. The world knows us not. It knew not Jesus when he dwelt in the flesh, else it would not have crucified the Lord of life and glory. Is it any wonder that it knows him not, dwelling still deeper veiled in the hearts of his members? It crucified Christ in his own person. It has crucified him in the persons of his saints. And if power were given, would so crucify him yet again. And yet, there is that in the divine life of the believer which awakens the wonderment of a Christ-rejecting world, that the believer should be unknown and yet well-known, should die, and yet live, should be chastened, and yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing all things, is indeed an enigma, a paradox to a carnal mind. Yes, there are moments when the believer is a mystery to himself, how the divine life in a soul is sustained in the midst of so much that enfeebles, kept alive, surrounded by so much that deadens, the glimmering spark not extinguished, though obscured, 
amid the billows. To drop all figures, how his soul advances when most opposed, soars when most burdened, rejoices when most afflicted, and sings the sweetest and the loudest, when the cross presses the heaviest, and the thorn pierces the deepest, may well cause him to exclaim, I am a wonder to others, but a greater wonder to myself. But if the nature and the supports of the divine life and the soul are hid, not so are its effects, and these prove its existence and reality. The world has a keen detecting eye upon the believer. It marks well his every step. It ponders narrowly his every going. It investigates and analyzes closely his secret motives. No flaw, no deviation. No compromise escapes its notice or its censor. It expects, and it has a right to expect, perfect harmony of principle and practice. It rebukes, and it has a right to rebuke, and mark discrepancy between the two. We say, then, that the effects of the life of God and the soul of the believer are observed by an ungodly world. There is that in the honest, upright walk of a child of God which arrests the attention and awakens the surprise of men, who all they hate and despise, cannot but admire, and marvel at it. Yet, another characteristic of the divine life in the soul is its security. Your life is hid with Christ in God. There, nothing can touch it. No power can destroy it. It is hid with Christ, the beloved Son of the Father, the delight, the glory, the richest and most precious treasure of Jehovah. Still more, it is hid with Christ and God, in the hand, in the heart, in the all-sufficiency, yes, in the eternity of God. Oh, the perfect security of the spiritual life of the believer. No power on earth or in hell can move it. It may be stormed by Satan assaulted by corruption, scorned by men, and even in the moment of unbelief and in the hour of deep trial its existence doubted by the believer himself. Yet there it is, deep lodged in the eternity of God, bound up in the heart and with the existence of Jehovah, and no foe can destroy it. It soon says Stephen Charnock, might Satan pull God out of heaven, undermine the security of Christ, and tear him from the bosom of the Father, is deprived the believer of his spiritual life, or destroy that principle of grace which God has implanted in him. But a greater than Stephen Charnock has declared, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John 10 verse 28 Let the sheep and the lambs of the little flock rejoice that the shepherd lives, and that because he lives, they shall live also. But we now pass to the consideration of the declension of this life in the soul. By a state of incipient declension, we mean that decay of spiritual life and grace in the believer, which marks its earliest and more concealed stage. It is latent and hidden, and therefore the least suspected, and the more dangerous. The painful process of spiritual disease may be advanced in the soul so secretly, so silently, 
and so unobservedly that the subject of it may have lost much ground, may have parted with many graces and much vigor, and may have been beguiled into an alarming state of spiritual barrenness and decay, before even a suspicion of its real condition has been awakened in its bosom. Like Samson, he may waken out of his sleep and say, I will go out, as at other times before, and shake myself. And he did not know that the Lord was departed from him, Judges 16, verse 20. Or he may resemble Ephraim, of whom it is recorded, strangers have devoured his strength. And he doesn't know it. Yes, gray hairs are here and there upon him. Yet he does not know it, Hosea 7, 9. This is a state of the soul we are now to examine. A state that has to do not with the outward observation of men, but more especially and immediately with a holy and heart-searching God. In looking into the state of a backslider in heart, we may in the first place show what an incipient state of declension does not necessarily involve. And first, it does not involve any alteration in the essential character of divine grace, but it's a secret decay of the health, vigor, and exercise of that grace in the soul. As in the animal frame, the heart loses nothing of its natural function, when through disease it sends but a faint and languid pulsation through the system, so in the spiritual constitution of the believer, divine grace may be sickly, feeble, and inoperative, and yet retain its character and its properties. The pulse may beat faintly, but still it beats. The scene may not be fruitful, but it lives and abides forever. The divine nature may be languid, but it can never assimilate or coalesce with any other. It must always retain its divinity untainted and unchanged. And yet, without changing its nature, divine grace may decline to an alarming extent in its power and exercise. It may be sickly, drooping, and ready to die. It may become so enfeebled through its decay is to present an ineffectual resistance to the inroads of strong corruption, so low that the enemy may ride roughshod over it at his will, so inoperative and yielding that sloth, worldliness, pride, carnality, and their kindred vices may obtain an easy and unresisted conquest. The decay of grace may be advancing too without any marked decline in the spiritual perception of the judgment as to the beauty and fitness of spiritual truth, the loss of spiritual enjoyment, not of a spiritual perception of the loveliness and harmony of the truth, shall be the symptom that betrays the true condition of the soul. The judgment shall lose none of its light, but the heart, much of its fervor, the truths of revelation, Especially the doctrines of grace shall occupy the same prominent position as to their value and beauty, and yet the influence of these truths may be scarcely felt. The word of God shall be assented to, but is the instruments of sanctification, of abasement, of nourishment, the believer may be an almost utter stranger to it. Yes, he must necessarily be so while this process of secret spiritual declension is going forward in his soul. 
This incipient state of declension may not involve any lowering of the standard of holiness, and yet there shall be no ascending of the heart, no reaching forth of the mind towards a practical conformity to that standard. The judgment shall acknowledge the divine law as embodied in the life of Christ to be the rule of the believer's walk, and yet to so low and feeble a state may vital godliness have declined in the soul that there shall be no panting after conformity to Christ, no breathing after holiness, no resistance unto blood striving against sin. Oh, it is an alarming condition for a Christian man when the heart contradicts a judgment and a life belies a profession, when there is more knowledge of the truth than experience of its power, more light in the understanding and grace in the affections, more pretension in the profession and holiness and spirituality in the walk. And yet, to this sad and melancholy state, it is possible for a Christian professor to be reduced. How should it lead a man of empty notions, of mere creeds, of lofty pretension, of cold and lifeless orthodoxy, to pause, search his heart, Examine his conscience and ascertain the true state of his soul before God. Once more, the state of secret departure from God may exist in connection with an outward and rigid observation of the means of grace, and yet there shall be no spiritual use of or enjoyment in the means, and this it may be is a great lullaby of his soul, rocked to sleep by a merely formal religion, the believer is beguiled into the delusion that his heart is right, and his soul prosperous in the sight of God. Even more than this, a declining believer may have sunk so deeply into a state of formality as to substitute the outward and the public means of grace for a close and secret walk with God. He may have taken up his abode in the outer courts of the temple. He may dwell in the mere porch of the sanctuary, frequent or even occasional retirement consecrated to meditation, self-examination, the reading of God's word, and secret prayer, may yield to an outward, bustling form of godliness, public and committee meetings, religious societies, business and professional engagements, wherein a religious aspect, and even important in their subordinate places, may thrust out God from the soul, and exclude Christ from the heart, and that a believer should be satisfied to live at this poor, dying rate, content to dwell amid the din and the bustle of the outworks. It's one of the most palpable and alarming symptoms of the decline of the life of God in a soul. But let us group some of the more positive marks of an incipient and hidden state of spiritual declension. When a professing man can proceed with his accustomed religious duties, strictly, regularly, formally, and yet experience no enjoyment of God in them, no filial nearness, no brokenness and tenderness, and no consciousness of sweet return, he may suspect that his soul is in a state of secret and incipient backsliding from God, satisfying and feeding his soul. If feeding it may be called, with a lifeless form, 
With stronger symptoms needs he of his real state. A healthy, growing state of religion in the soul demands more for its nourishment and support than this. A believer, panting for God, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, gray thriving, the heart deeply engaged in spiritual duties, lively, prayerful, humble, and tender, ascending in his frame and desires. A state marked by these features cannot be tied down to a lifeless, spiritless form of religious duties. These were but husks to a healthy state of the life of God in the soul. It wants more. It will hunger and thirst. And this spiritual longing must be met. And nothing can satisfy and satiate it but live it upon Christ, the bread and the water of life. I am the bread of life. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. My flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. The professing man that goes all his days without this nourishment, thus starving his soul, may well exclaim, My leanness, my leanness. Oh, how solemn to such are the words of our Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6, verse 53. Again, when a professing man can read his Bible with no spiritual taste, or when he searches it, not with a sincere desire to know the mind of the Spirit in order to a holy and obedient walk, but merely with a curious or literary taste and aim, it is a sure evidence that his soul is making but a retrograde movement in real spirituality. Nothing perhaps more strongly indicates the tone of a believer's spirituality than the light in which the scriptures are regarded by him. They may be read, and yet read as any other book. Without the deep and solemn conviction that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Second Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. They may be read, without a spiritual relish, without being turned into prayer, without treasuring up in the heart, and reducing to daily practice its holy precepts, its precious promises, its sweet consolations, its faithful warnings, its affectionate admonitions, its tender rebukes. And thus read, how can a believer expect to derive that profit from the scriptures which they were intended and are so calculated to convey when a professing Christian can pray and yet acknowledge that he has no nearness to the throne, no touching of the scepter, no fellowship with God, calls him Father without the sense of adoption, confesses sin in a general way, without any looking up to God through the cross, has no consciousness of possessing the ear in the heart of God. The evidence is undoubted of a declining state of religion in the soul, and when, too, he can find no sweetness in a spiritual ministry, when he is restless and dissatisfied under a searching, practical unfolding of truth, 
when the doctrines are preferred to the precepts, the promises to the commands, the consolations to the admonitions of the gospel, incipient declension is marked. When the believer has but few dealings with Christ, his blood, but seldom traveled to, his fullness, but little lived upon, his love and glory scarcely mentioned, the symptoms of declension in the soul are palpable. Perhaps nothing forms a more certain criterion of the state of the soul than this. We'd be willing to test a man's religion, both as to its nature and its growth, by his reply to the question, What think you of Christ? Does his blood daily moisten the root of your profession? Is his righteousness that which exalts you out of and above yourself? and daily gives you free and near access to God. Is the sweetness of his love much in your heart, and the fragrance of his name much on your lips? Are your corruptions daily carried to his grace, your guilt to his blood, your trials to his heart? In a word, is Jesus the substance of your life, the source of your sanctification, the one glorious object on which your eye is ever resting, the mark towards which you are ever pressing. Be not offended, reader, if we remark that a professing man may talk well of Christ and may do homage to his name and build up his cause and promote his kingdom and yet rest short of having Christ in his heart, the hope of glory. It is not the talking about religion, or ministers, or churches, nor an outward zeal for their prosperity that either constitutes or indicates a truly spiritual man. And yet, how much of this in our day passes current for the life of God in the soul? Oh, that among God's dear saints there was less talking of ministers, and more of Jesus, less of sermons, and more of the power of the truth in their souls, Less of, I am of Paul, thy of Apollos, and more of, I am of Christ. An uncharitable walk towards other Christians marks a low state of grace in the soul. The more entirely the heart is occupied with the love of Christ, the less room there will be for uncharitableness towards his saints. It is because there is so little love to Jesus that there is so little towards his followers. In proportion as a mind becomes spiritual, it rises above party distinctions and names. It resigns its narrow and exclusive views, casts away its prejudices against other sections of the one church, and embraces any yearnings of its Christian sympathy. All who love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity, in advocating a wider platform of Christian love, we would by no means sell the truth, or compromise principles, or immolate conscience upon the altar of an infidel liberalism, but that for which we plead is more that Christian love, tender-heartedness, kindness, charity, which allows a right of private judgment, respects a conscientious maintenance of truth, and concedes to others the same privilege it claims for itself, differing as many of the saints of God necessarily do in judgment. Does the same necessity exist, wherefore they shall be alienated in affection? 
we think, far from it. There is common ground on which all Christians who hold the head can stand. There are truths which can assimilate all our minds and blend all our hearts. Why then should we stand aloof from the one body and exclaim, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are we. Why should we refuse to recognize the Father's image in the children's face and treat them as aliens in person, in spirit, and in language, because they see not eye to eye with us in all our interpretations of God's word? Why should not all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away with all malice? And why should we not be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us, seeing that the church is but one, the family but one, the true believers are all one in Christ Jesus. This will be so where there is a deepening spirituality, and its absence marks a decay of grace, a waning of the life of God in the soul. We have thus endeavored to bring to view some of the prominent characteristics of a state of incipient declension of the life of God in a believer. It will be seen that we have referred to those only which mark the hidden departure of the heart from God. That state that is so concealed, so veiled from the eye, and wearing so fair an exterior that all suspicion of its existence is lulled to rest and the soul is soothed with the delusion that all is well with it. Dear reader, is this your state? Has this book thus far detected in you any secret deep cleansing and concealed departure? Any hard backsliding? Has it proved to you the Spirit of God speaking by it that your soul is in an unhealthy state? The divine life within you is drooping. Do not turn from the discovery, painful though it be. Look at it fully. Honestly, it is no step towards a recovery of a sickly state to disguise the worst symptoms of that state from the eye. To mark a true wisdom and skill is to ascertain the worst of the disease, to probe the depth of the wound. And although such a course may be painful to the patient, it is essential to a thorough recovery. Beloved, it is important that you should know the exact state of your soul before God. And if you are sincere in that petition, which is often breathed from your lip, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. You will thank him for any gentle and faithful admonition that sets you upon the great work of self-examination. It is fit, says Dr. John Owen, that professors of all sorts should be reminded of these things, for we may see not a few of them under visible decays, without any sincere endeavors after a recovery, who yet please themselves that the root of the manner is in them. It is so, if love of the world, conformity unto it, negligence and holy duties, coldness and spiritual love be an evidence of such decays. But let none deceive their own souls. Wherever there is a saving principle of grace, it will be thriving and growing unto the end. And if it fall under obstructions and thereby into decays for a season, 
It will give no rest or quietness unto the soul wherein it is, but will labor continually for a recovery. Peace. In a spiritually decaying condition, it's a soul-ruining security. Better it be that you are under the terror on account of the surprisal into some sin than be in peace under evident spiritual decays, a spiritual life.